This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. You know, well, I'm sitting here and we're recording this on a, a Thursday night and it's opening day for Major League Baseball. It's the the return of major live sports uh, to our televisions. And, and Brian, I got to admit, it, it's weird watching, you know, a, a, a Yankees game with no fans in the stands. I'm in Tampa. We go to Rays games. We know what empty stands in a baseball game looks like every day. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, especially, you know, watching it on TV, it's still baseball and it's still sports. And I still, and I think it's going to work. It's going to be enough to get us through if you're a baseball fan. And I think as we, you know, look to the NFL, with other sports, hockey and basketball are starting up in the, in the next week or two. And then football, you know, we have training camps coming up. You know, COVID-19 is going to make everything look different this year. But if if what I watched tonight on the baseball diamond is any indication, if the, if they can avoid the, the, the virus itself, I guess, you know, permeating the league, and if they can handle it from a health and safety perspective – Getting through a season with with few, if not if any fans, uh, is going to be good enough as long as everybody can stay safe. Brian, what what do you think about the football world as we enter this? Is this going to work? Well, I mean, think about it, Luke. This you know this is the first time anybody on this planet is going through something like a COVID nineteen global pandemic, and obviously things are changing by the day, by the hour, by the minute, even regarding hot spots popping up throughout the country and different measures that states and even cities have to take, whether, you know, a hot topic for people with school-age children, are we going to have school in the fall, let alone sports? I mean, there's so many bigger picture issues that go well beyond football that we're all coping with on a daily basis that the return of sports is essentially good for psychology. It's good for your state of mind. It's good for people to have that escape again. And I think sports in any form, especially football in any form, fans or no fans will give that same respite from what we've been all dealing with since really March, if not a little bit beyond that. So I think football or sports in any form, fans or no fans is going to be a good thing. And, you know, when you talk about the NFL and is it going to be suddenly different without fans in the stands? I don't know how much different, Luke, the viewing experience on television is going to be from the fourth quarter of the first week of the preseason or the fourth quarter of the fourth week of the preseason. I mean, by the time you get to the last five minutes, the final five or four minutes of those games, there's nobody in the stands. I mean, you have probably less people in the stands during those games, during those moments than you would have in a social distancing type setup in NFL stadiums during a pandemic. I mean, you don't have 20,000 people hanging around for the last two minutes of the last preseason game, but you still watch it on TV and it's still fine. 
I mean, if those were, if it was, you know, Tom Brady versus Patrick Mahomes in the final four minutes of that fourth quarter game, that fourth preseason game with no fans in the stands, you bet your ass everybody's still watching on television and the viewing experience is not going to be that much different, especially if the stadiums pump in some crowd noise. And also, Luke, you can look at a very maybe strange example of how it still kind of works, even though it's not football or a sport as we would traditionally call it. But if you look at professional wrestling and what the WWE has been doing, they haven't stopped. I mean, I don't know if anybody's taking notice of this, but Monday Night Raw and Friday Night SmackDown and, and pay-per-views are still going on. They held WrestleMania with nobody in attendance. And it was really odd at first. But now if you're a wrestling fan, after a couple months of this, it's almost like you forgot what it was like to have fans in the arena. So people adjust quickly, Luke. And when you have something that's such a part of this national culture, which is football, the national passion, you know, whether there's 50 fans, 5,000 fans, or 25,000 fans, everybody's going to tune in to watch the superstars do their thing on Sundays. I, you know, I, I have to agree, and, and I, I haven't been paying any attention to the wrestling, but I, I feel like I feel like that it, it could be that way across the board. I feel like we will get used to what we have to get used to if it means we get to watch our sports, right? I mean, you know, we'll talk about how, you know, it's not the same for a little while. We'll talk about how, you know, some of the measures might seem silly in certain ways. But at the end of the day, you know, I was downstairs you know, watching with both of my kids and, you know, learning about different pitch grips and how the ball moves on certain pitches. And, you know, we're learning, we're enjoying all the things about watching baseball that you would be if there were no fans or fans at all. So it, and you know, Luke, it's also one of these things where you don't notice something until it's, until you're forced to notice it. And, you know, when you watch some of these replays on NFL network of football games from last season, the, the television angle, when you're watching a football game, you don't see the fans. I mean, a rare exception, guy scores a touchdown, you see fans in the end zone. You don't see it. You hear it. The audio is going to be important. How do the television networks simulate crowd noise? How do you simulate those moments of the game when the crowd, you're, you can almost feel it, you know, you can feel the intensity picking up. But it's not like that. It's not that universal experience across the league. I mean, Bengals games at home when they're losing in the fourth quarter, crowd noise ain't, is not a factor in what you're watching on television. It's kind of be it's going to be like watching that last preseason game or the Bengals home game in week 15 when they're down by three touchdowns in the fourth quarter. You know, it's that's what you're going to feel with every game. But, you know, I think the reason why everybody's making an issue of this is because we're being forced to pay attention to something that we've never really paid attention to. And we're going to realize quickly that it's really not that big of a deal for the at-home viewer. It's going to be a bigger deal for the players, I think. Right, and that's that was exactly what I was going to say next, is that it's definitely going to be a huge impact for the players and be way way more strange for them to get used to you know, not having a, a crowd to, uh, to entertain or to perform for and just know that everybody is sitting at home uh, watching it and doing their best to appreciate it the same way. You know, the NFL is going to be one story, Brian. We've seen the league and the and the players union, you know, continuing to go back and forth over some of these, you know, health protocols and these safety measures that they're trying to put in place. Everybody's trying to get on the same page. But if we look at this from an NFL draft perspective, 
if you look at the college football landscape, there's just it's so much more of a Wild West situation because there's no real governing body of college football, even at the highest levels in the NCAA, you know, you know, the, the real, the only oversight they have is making sure that, uh, you know, a recruit doesn't have too many cheeseburgers bought for him uh, by somebody who used to go to that school uh, or making sure that someone's, you know, parents aren't living rent free in some apartment somewhere so they can go to school. Uh, They don't really have any power in terms of, um, what a you know what a NFL commissioner or any other commissioner of a professional league would have in terms of unilaterally proposing these measures. So what you see is the major football conferences in college football, you know, saying, "Well, this is what we're going to do. We're not going to have non-conference games. Well, neither are we." And you know, you see the Ivy League. You know, we're not going to play fall sports at all. How do you see this playing out the in in the college football landscape this year? And, and really, that rolls into the big thing from a draft perspective for me, which is what are we going to see some of these big-name prospects do in terms of preserving themselves? Brian, we've, we've seen guys skip bowl games to keep themselves healthy for the next year. What about skipping a season to make sure you don't put your, your health and safety at risk? If you're, if you're Trevor Lawrence and you have, you know, half of your offensive line gets sick, are you going to go out there without Justin Ross, without, you know, the receivers you've had over the last few years? Are you going to put yourself out there in that situation when you could literally go home and work out for the next six months and be the number one pick in the draft? I, I just don't. And Trevor, and I'm sorry, Luke, I thought you were done, but Tre- Trevor Lawrence, I mean, he's one, he's the perfect example, Luke, because the only thing that can happen to Trevor Lawrence in the 2020 college season is that his stock goes down. Like, if he just does what Trevor Lawrence is supposed to do, he's going to be the number one pick overall. The only way or the only, only, you know, direction for him to go is down. He cannot improve his stock. Like, his stock is as high as it will be if it's he has. It's been that a, way since what? The national championship yeah. game is freshman year. He, he literally has nothing to gain from playing and everything to lose by playing. Now, in a traditional season setup, that's football. That's competition. That's that's you know you want to see from your starting quarterback that he is bigger than himself. That he has goals that extend beyond his own personal you know his own personal goals. It's not about being the number one pick. It's about winning a national championship. The team first mentality is extremely important for a quarterback. And when quarterbacks sit out bowl games or quarterbacks skip a season that can raise a red flag for a general manager in a traditional sense. But if a quarterback is not going to play in a season because he's worried about contracting a a virus that could severely put his parents or grandparents or his offensive coordinator or his, you know, whoever, his uncle or himself at risk of dying, uh, you know, I think that that's an exception to the longstanding rule of players play. So I don't think that, you know, but before we get into some specific guys and what our overall strategy here, if it was you or me, I mean, think about the guys that aren't going to go pro. Think about the rest of college football, which is a gigantic majority of the players playing on Saturday. What in God's name gives them any motivation to play this season if it, unless they're going to be, you know, I, I dare any of these major programs to pull a kid's scholarship because they're opting out of the season. That would be ridiculous, right? So if you're not going to pull a kid's scholarship and they're going to maintain their free education and they're not a draft prospect, 
Why in the world, if they have any parental guidance, would that person put themselves in a locker room, shoulder to shoulder, in arguably the most contagious possible setting in a sporting environment? Why would that player play? Now, look, I know a lot of our listeners are going to say it's the lifelong goal, you know, the lifetime dream of a, of a young kid from Ohio playing for Ohio State and winning a national championship. And not everybody has pro aspirations, but winning that national championship for the Buckeyes would be the accomplishment of a lifetime, and that's why they'd play. Right. I and get even it, just but being Luke, on the field to a certain extent, they, we get that. That It's understandable. Like, Luke, if that's your lifetime goal, is are you going to feel fulfilled if it happens in 2020? Like, if the who is the national championship team in 2020, if you're not playing out of conference games and all of these scheduling quirks and some teams won't even field a, a, a team, I bet you you're going to have wins by forfeit before the season's over. Are you really going to feel fulfilled like that goal was fulfilled? To me, it feels like the risk is much greater than the reward for guys like that. And if I had a, a child or a son at that point, I mean, we always look at our kids as children, right? right? But if I had a son who was 20, 21, 22 years old, about to co- graduate from college and start their civilian life after athletics, and they didn't have a pro future, maybe they were a third or fourth stringer their whole career, but held on to that scholarship, I would be begging them not to play this season because they made it this far without getting severely injured, maybe, and now you're going to risk a potentially lethal virus just for the sake of having your last college football season played, just to notch it, put that notch on your belt. It doesn't make sense. But Luke, I'm going to throw this back to you. What would you do if you were a top 20 prospect? First round, top day one or day two. Let's let's go top 100. If you're a top 100 pick and it's pretty safe based on all the draft conversation, maybe you had the advisory board tell you last year you were going to be a second rounder, but you wanted to come back this year to be a first rounder. Let's say all that information is relatively reliable, and you know you're going to be a top 100 pick, which means you're going to get drafted, and that means you're probably making a team as a rookie with very little effort. What would you do? You know, I think that at first what I would do is try to talk to people in, you know, in my network throughout, you know, because a lot of these guys, if, if you're talking about being a top 100 pick, chances are you played high school ball or played at the, you know, Under Armour All-American game, went to Elite 11 or some of these, you know, these seven on seven camps with a lot of other players who are in your situation throughout the country. So, you know, other guys either playing on your team, playing in your conference, playing for other big programs that are in your same boat or at least close enough to where you can have this conversation. You can hit your friends up and say, Hey, this is what I'm thinking. Where's your head at? What are the things you're thinking about? And you bounce those conversations off one another. And I think what, what you would see is, is at least a a good bit of a consensus I think would be reached one way or the other. And I think if it were me, I don't see any way that that conversation doesn't steer towards, you know what guys, I just don't know if it's worth it. And if enough of us decide that and decide, listen, assuming, like you said, you know, our scholarships aren't going to go away. We, we don't lose a year of eligibility. We're just going to come back and try to do this again. I think if we look especially to, you know, recent events in recent months and even in recent years with regards to players realizing what kind of power they have collectively, 
And I think if you get a, a good number of players who are all some of the bigger names in college football to get together and say, listen, we, we don't believe this is safe. We are perfectly fine putting this off until I don't know if, you know, a spring season is feasible. We can talk, have that conversation at a later date. But if, if you want us to, you know, in late July, early August, with, you know, the, the, the numbers and this virus doing what it is cu- currently, you want us to, to get together and play this sport. Because, again, we're not talking about the NFL, Brian. We're not talking about a, a collectively bargained, union-protected group of players who have, you know, liability protection built in. They have a union fighting for their rights and for their health and safety. These players do not have that at the college level. They're already getting exploited to a certain extent in terms of what the universities are reaping from their benefits. And and we're seeing that pendulum start to finally push the other way with this uh, name, image, and likeness legislation that a lot of states are putting forth and players are letting their voices be heard. I think that power would be well used to to say to these universities, these athletic departments, we're not comfortable doing this. We are going to punt this season and we're going to come back and try again next year. Our health, our safety is more important than trying to force this and make this happen. I don't think I would play. And and this is going to have a much, much longer tail than just the college football season, too. I mean, is there a reasonable expectation that this virus will be controlled enough by the time the NFL combine would traditionally roll around in February? Is it going to be controlled enough by the time even the senior bowl would roll around in January? Questions we have to answer for ourselves, Brian, we go to these things like exactly. Are you and I going to get on a plane? Are you and I going to drive to mobile? Are we going to fly to Indianapolis? Like, are we going to do that? Are you kidding me? I mean, I I had a really scary experience coming back from the Senior Bowl this year when I decided after the Thursday night practice, the Thursday practice, it was, you know, after being down there all week, decided, you know, I'm going to just change my flight. I'm going to I'm going to get out of town uh, late Thursday night instead of, of waiting to fly out on Friday morning. Changed my flight, felt like I, you know, I was having a stroke of luck, got a great seat, et cetera, et cetera. And this is right when the coronavirus was starting to essentially breach the borders here of the United States. And I get on the plane and, you know, the, the seat in front of me, directly in front of me was empty. And then the last person that checks in was a very disheveled young man who is, is just clearly out of sorts. I thought maybe he was drunk, whatever it might have been. He sits down and I'm listening to the conversation that he's having with the person next to him as he's coughing and and everything else. And mind you, another little side note here. He had, I cannot make this up, Luke, plastic sandwich bags over his hands. His cell phone was wrapped in plastic. He had layers essentially of plastic on his limbs and everything else, which was odd. But look, people are germ freaks, right? To each their own. He started telling the guy next to him that he was in China for the Chinese New Year and was held in quarantine for two weeks before he could get on the plane to return to the United States, which was essentially like, do the math, just a couple days before he was on the flight that I was on. And the entire time... We're flying home from, uh, this was a, my connecting flight in Charlotte. This gentleman's coughing and coughing and coughing. I'm talking a 90-minute flight of nonstop. 
coughing. Now, I am a guy who I like to think I do my due diligence and I research and I read and I pay attention to the news. And I was very aware of the spreading of COVID and how it would spread and that, you know, probably need to cover your mouth and face. This is before face masks became recommended and became such a source of contention here in this country. Luke, I looked like the biggest freak. And we're going to actually talk about Bruce Feldman's freak list in a few minutes. <laughs> I looked like the freak on the plane because I had a hoodie on. I took the hoodie, pulled it all the way up to the bottom of my eyes and the top of the hood down to my eyebrows. I looked like a damn ninja on this flight home. Because I said, if this guy's got the goddamn COVID-19 and I'm right behind him on this freaking plane, I'm going to be that first case in New Jersey that's got COVID-19. Now, fortunately, thank God, you know, nothing happened. For all I know, I was asymptomatic after that flight. Who knows, right? But that moment made me realize just then 60 days later, the outbreak in the Northeast was, was the scariest thing I ever lived through. And to think that in just a couple months, we're right back at that time point in the calendar. Where we're going to get on planes, like you said, to go to Mobile, to go to Indy. Hey, Luke, I'm telling you right now, I ain't doing it, man. If there's no vaccine, if there's no if there's no treatment for it, there's no way anybody with common sense would do this stuff, which is why if you're sitting here saying, oh, the players should play, the players should play. Yeah, well, would you do it? I mean, you have to say, would you let your child do it? Would you let someone you love do it? Yeah, we're all fans at heart, and we want to see this game played. But you can't blame these guys if they opt out or if they decide not to play. I won't get on a plane. Yeah, I'm going to tell some 22-year-old kid to strap on the pads and play 60 minutes of football for 13 weeks plus practices plus locker rooms plus everything else that goes into it and subject themselves to that risk. That would be the most hypocritical thing any of us can say. So I wonder what the draft process is going to look like this year. I don't think we're going to see the traditional testing and time numbers. We're not going to have as much tape. Some guys are only going to have tape through 2019. We might not have 40s on a lot of guys. It's going to be a very, very, very odd year. We thought this year's draft was strange when Roger Goodell was conducting a fantasy draft from his basement. <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be that on steroids this year. I had to I had to laugh when you brought up the the hypocrisy of some of you know the people who say that these things should just you know the players should play and you get have, have you noticed I know you've got kids you notice all these school districts across the country are having these meetings about whether or not they should send kids back to school and they're having all their meetings over zoom. But I, Luke, <laughs> you're preaching the requirement. I'm saying to myself, you know, Hey, tonight I got, I got an email today, right? Email. We're having a, basically parents could join the conversation, give their input on whether our elementary school children can go back to school in September. It's July 23rd. We're basically 60, less than 45 days out from going back to school. And yet not a single one of these adults are offering <laughs> to have the conversation in a classroom. You know what? I will, I will gladly consider sending my kids back to school in September if the superintendent and principal and teachers and parents who are banging the table to have in-classroom, like in-person school again, if they conduct the meeting sitting at the same seats that our children will be sitting in in a classroom, if they're willing to do that, then hey, maybe they're confident in the safety measures that will be in place. But if they're not willing to conduct that meeting in a classroom that my son will sit in, why should I send my son? I'm with you, man. I, I'm, 
I'm right there with you, and it's going to be a very interesting process. It, it's it's one of those things where like it's so unprecedented in certain ways that it's hard to know what the right thing to do is. And and I don't envy some of the people in leadership positions who have to make those difficult decisions. I think what I try to approach this as, you know, just have understanding and empathy for people. You know, being down here in the Tampa area, we've seen some fans and even some members of the media here in Tampa have a really um, kind of interesting is not the right word, but a very strange reaction to a guy like Donovan Smith, the left tackle for the Buccaneers, you know, being very vocal with his concerns on Twitter. This is a guy who's about to get, you know, his, his he's about to have his first child in, in a matter of weeks. And he's faced with the decision to, he's dealing with real life issues and real life concerns. And we're sitting here worried about a game. And, you know, we literally, I, I read, you know, something somebody wrote about trying to tell Donovan Smith was basically a, a letter to Donovan Smith about why he should play because other people in, you know, these essential jobs, they're risking their lives. So why shouldn't he, especially when he's getting paid so much money. And I'm just like, man, are we missing the point here? Like, are we missing the point that people are having to decide whether or not to go back to work or miss their, the birth of their first child or not see them for a month and have to, you know, quarantine themselves because of who they're coming in contact with. Like, we remember this is a game, right? This is a sport. This is not real life. Yeah. Football, football is not essential. It's not essential. Playing football is not essential to life. A police officer, a doctor, a nurse, healthcare professional, firefighter, those are essential workers. And you know what? That's why they deserve to get paid a heck of a lot more than they do, Luke, because we're realizing in a pandemic like this just how important people like teachers are. I mean, look at how critically important classroom, the classroom setting, the teachers who go to work every day and essentially are entrusted with the care and protection of our children on a daily basis, just how important they are. You don't realize it until they're taken out of your life. Guess what? We've lived a couple months without NBA players, without MLB players. We could survive without football players. You take teachers out of your life. You take healthcare workers out of your life. You really got a problem. That's why they're essential workers. We can live with a shortened baseball season. Look at the uproar it's causing to have a shortened school year. I mean, it's a bit, you realize it brings life into perspective. And that's the thing that, I, that frustrates me the most is sports is so important to having a recreational outlet in life. And that goes for whether you play it or watch it or what have you. Now, there are livelihoods at stake. There are people like you and I who cover the game. And there are people who coach the game and there are people who play the game and they need the game in order to make their ends meet at the end of every month. But it's not essential. And I think when, you know, fans who are probably pending that letter, Luke, from a quarantined, socially distanced environment to tell somebody to risk their life or their newborn baby's life or the pregnant wife's life and play a game, you know, it's easy to say that. If you're sitting in your apartment and there's no one within six feet of you, I mean, it's very easy to do that. And and again, this is this is just something that there are so many different levels to, and so many differences between the, the NF the way the NFL can handle this and the way the college ranks can handle this. I just feel like there are so many unknowns. 
even at the end of the day, there are so many unknowns that we're going to have to get at least attempts at answers for when it comes, especially to the NFL and then with college, what they want to do. Eventually, they're going to have to decide, are we going to play or not and, and live with the consequences of that decision? But for me, if I were a, a player, I feel like there's so many unknowns and things we will never have answers to until literally years from now when we are able to look back on this and, and research what happened. I just feel like Luke, let me ask let me ask you this, Luke. Let me ask you this. Would you like rather have a 2020 college football calendar year where the big name guys, if not all players and prospects in general, are kind of sitting the season, sitting out the year. We have 2019 tape. Eventually, in the best case scenario, maybe we have the traditional pro days and combine and maybe an all-star circuit does actually get off the ground versus like having a six game sample size, seven game sample size where players aren't playing, you know, competition outside their conference, maybe not even playing in the college right. football. How, playoff how useful is even that film is gonna be? a college football player? Yeah, I mean it the the for me as a fan of the game and as an analyst of the draft, I would rather know, hey, look, we have a college football season where we know none of the top guys are getting hurt. None of the big prospects are getting everybody's gonna be as healthy as they've ever been going into their rookie season. God forbid, you know, a COVID issue pops up, but they're gonna be as healthy as they've ever been. And let's also not fact let's not let's not forget the shady side of this either, Luke. There's a lot of unscrupulous agents out there who are going to seize this opportunity and tell a player who might be a, a top 100 guy, sit out the season, give up your eligibility. Our agency will front you your cost of living for the next 18 months before you come up, before you turn pro. We're so confident that you're going to be a top 50 pick. It's in a, It's worth the investment. You'll get a head start on training. Now, the traditional training facilities want to do like a 12-week program, sometimes not even that long because they want you to peak at the NFL combine and they, it's down to a science in terms of you building and stacking that training to the point where when you go to the combine in February, you are at your peak performance level. So there is a legitimate concern with overdoing it in some of this stuff, but that's if you're training for the combine. That's like when you're specifically training for an end goal, testing at the combine in the third or fourth week of February. But if you could sit here and say, all right, I'm not playing college ball this year. And in September, I have my agent already signed, sealed. And he's going to he's gonna drop 50 grand to train me for the next five months. And it might not be intense combine training until the traditional training calendar picks up. But I'm going to have a head start at learning the science of the three-cone drill, learning the science of the 40-yard dash, learning the science of the vertical jump. So that when I really dive into the training like that, that to get to that peak level, I'm going to shatter combine records. Like you're going to see guys that might say, I'd rather use this season. And it's a business year. It's a business trip. This is nothing more than business for these guys. And if you have the agents who want to say, look, sit out, don't worry about it. You can't get paid to play this year. Anyway, you're going to make money by sitting out because our agency is going to give you cash in your pocket. Every single week, spending money. We'll lease you a car. You'll have an apartment. You'll be living the high life this entire quote-unquote season as you get ready for the draft in 2021. I mean, you're going to have guys that, I mean, that's a very real, real 
possibility for guys that are going to consider sitting out. You're or you're going to they're going to start and this investing is a conversation in their pro career. We've had about prospects before, Brian. We've had it about guys like Leonard Fournette, who you know, especially the running back position. We were like, what does he need to prove in his you know last year of eligibility before he can enter the draft? Would he have been better off just? doing that just starting from you know starting his training early and just you know, getting, you're right and we've seen that happen with guys <laughs> who are skipping bowl games and, and stuff so right. like that they start as early as possible if they don't see a long-term value added by what they're about to do on the college football landscape in terms of their future projections at the next level we've already seen it they will take that opportunity and say you know what it's not as important as what I'm about to do in the future. And they make the, the business decision to back out of that. I feel like this is just the next step in that. Leonard Fournette would have been the number four pick overall after his freshman season. And Leonard Fournette was the number four pick after another couple of seasons of wear and tear that gained, he gained nothing, nothing with all the extra carries with the extra injuries. He gained nothing. The NFL rules, mandated that he had to stay in in college for three years post high school graduation. He had no choice, but Leonard Fournette's stock did not go up by having an extra two seasons at LSU. It did not. So if you know that there, and the the history of uh, look, Joe Burrow will be the shining light at the beacon, the example for all the guys to go back and play this season to say, look, I could be him. I'm starting this year maybe in the top 150, I could end my season as a top 10 pick because look what Joe Burrow did. And there's plenty of examples like that, especially at the quarterback position, Kyler Murray, Baker Mayfield, the list goes on and on of guys who started a season as prospects and ended the season as the number one pick overall, started the season as day three guys, ended the season as first round picks. So there are examples of players who can benefit from a final season, whether it's their junior or senior year, that one more year. So a sophomore who's going to be a junior this year, or the junior who's going to be a senior, there are guys who could benefit by having that one more season. But when you factor in all of these, all of these elements that we've been talking about, you know, you know, a guy like Trey Lance, for example, I mean, he's a guy like, what the hell does he do? You know, North Dakota State quarterback after a freshman year, 28 touchdowns, zero interceptions, redshirt freshman. He'll be a redshirt sophomore. He could turn pro after the 2020, <clears throat> 2020 college season. He needs a season. He needs more tape. But, like, does he really? I mean, he's already considered a top 15 pick. It, it's like, it's something that I think he it would be helpful, but how badly does he need it? Like, and would that need tape, outweigh the danger of playing? Yeah, and, and he's another guy like he can only really go down from here. Like if he has a great year in 2020, he's what we're projecting him to be right now. If he has a year of 24 touchdowns and 14 interceptions, he might suddenly be a mid second rounder. So like, does a guy like Trey Lance say, Whoa, this is a great opportunity for me to sit on this one miraculous season, be draft eligible after 2020 and just let it ride. Let my redshirt freshman year be the year on tape. And NFL offensive coordinators, quarterback coaches, head coaches, GMs, do you have the balls to take me after that one season? Someone's going to be quarterback hungry enough to take him in the top 15 just on that one year. But if he plays 
during a season that is going to be really set up for failure for everybody, less practice, less training camp time, you know, the, the, you know, not having, especially a guy like Trey Lance, where maybe the out of conference games would be more important to his film playing the bigger schools. I'm not sure how North Dakota states, uh, North Dakota state's schedules being impacted by this, but if some of those games are taken off of his schedule, is he going to really benefit? I, I feel like he's a guy that would have to really strongly consider resting on his redshirt freshman season and saying, screw it. You know, COVID is not worth, it's just not worth it. My season cannot possibly be good enough to match what I did last year. And I'll, all that's going to, all I'm going to do by playing is give scouts and draft analysts and draft Twitter reasons to pick my game apart. If I have six games in a shortened COVID season and I only throw 13 touchdowns and six interceptions, I'm suddenly not the same Trey Lance that everybody thought I was in July and August of 2020. Yeah, I mean, I every player is going to have those questions and they're each going to have a unique, you know, perspective on it in certain ways, but I feel like at the end of the day for most of these guys, again, if you have any, you know, any sort of shot, there's no such thing as a lock or a safe pick, you know, outside of, you know, some of the biggest names, but I just don't see the payoff, man. I I don't see unless something changes drastically and I don't see it happening by the time we would start a college football season. I don't see how the 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 ends will justify the means i just don't see it and you know as here's another thing luke here's another thing i don't mean to keep cutting me off here but obviously i'm I'm pretty emotional about this stuff yeah 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 yeah, i guess you know i'm emotional about this um some players their scouting report is like that leonard fournette example what does Najee harris what is he going to do in 2020 that changes your scouting report of him right now? What is Travis Etienne going to do in 2020 that changes your scouting report of him right now? The guys who are coming back for their senior year, who everybody said, oh man, he uh, it was a surprising guy to return to school. Everybody knows who those guys are, right? So aside from team goals and team accomplishments and maybe just padding your, your career college stats, you know, when you, you look at these guys, like when I wrote up Najee Harris for pro football draft, I'm saying like, well, I think I ended the report by saying, you don't have to revisit Najee Harris's tape in 2020. You just don't. Like he right. is who he is. And a guy like that is just, he's not going to change. Like if you're seeing something in the 2020 season that makes him go from a third round pick to a first round pick, you missed something. If you see a guy who was a fifth round pick on your evaluation, but now in 2020 is a first round guy, you missed something. There's enough work. There's enough body of tape for a player like Najee Harris where you know who he is already. And rather than keep chasing our tail here, Luke, and talking about the same thing over and over because we can keep going and I'll keep cutting you off every <laughs> minute and a half. You're hot about it, Brian. You're hot about it. I am, man. I am. Let's move on to something else that kind of came out this week during, uh, you know, uh, that has a lot of draft fans. It gets them really aroused, for lack of a better wow. term, is the Bruce Feldman's college football <laughs> freaks list. Like that? I, like I, that you know, whether I like very, it or very, not, very it doesn't nice matter. Visual. You're going to cut me off when, no matter how I feel about it. So, Look, aroused is probably putting it politely. So the freaks list. Luke, what stands out to you on the freaks list? Anything that jumps out to you? I mean, look, we got guys like Quiddy Pay and Carlos Basham, uh, you know, maybe we'll start with the guy who's ranked seventh on this list, Master Teague, and maybe a little more of a, of a macro view. What, what, 
what kind of weight do you put into something like this? A list that breaks these prospects down by their physical attributes, their athleticism, the size, strength, speed combination. How much stock do you put into players who are described as, quote, freaks? You know, I, I do take a macro view of this because it's about, it's not just about, you know, hey, look at Jadavion Clowney and how much better he is than usually everybody else on the field. I, I And I like the way Bruce did it with this last one. I don't know if it's the same way he's done it in the past, but he identifies a particular trait in each of these players that is that is transferable and translatable to the next level in terms of, you know, whether it's a combine drill that he would be really great at or, a, you know, a specific trait that he has that, that kind of is his trump card. That's the kind of stuff NFL teams are looking for. It's It's what can you do for me? Don't tell me what a guy can't do. Tell me what he can do. And this is what I like about lists like this is it shows you, hey, this guy may not be a complete player. He may not be able to be everything to every offense in every situation or every defense in every situation and every scheme. But if you need a guy who can do X, Y, or Z really, really well on a level that's just so far above average and in, in, in the upper echelon of, of athleticism, this is a guy who is a unique talent in that particular area. So more so than particular players, I'm looking at those traits and saying, hey, does this guy fit what we need? Do we need a guy who has, you know, Tyreek Hill type ability and potential? That's why a guy like Henry Ruggs goes ahead of Jerry Judy and CeeDee Lamb, guys that were considered more complete wide receivers. This is what they're talking about. They're talking about guys that have a trump card that fits what a particular offense wants. And I think that's how I look at a list like this. It's what do those guys bring to the table that sets them apart and makes them unique compared to the rest of, of the guys at their position. It's, you know, and, and, and yeah, it's a good way of putting it. It's, it is that those, those variables that tend to get even scouts excited and, and coaches especially and, and let's, let's, you know, for comparative purposes, let's look at last year's freaks list and see how it turned out for the 2020 NFL draft. And it's really interesting if you look at just a very small sample size, but number one was Tristan Wirfs, first round pick. That's interesting. And number two, Neville Gallimore, player on the rise throughout the draft season, ended up being a high pick. Number three, James Smith Williams from NC State. Let's go to number four, Isaiah Simmons. First round pick. Number five, Jonathan Taylor, Wisconsin running back. High second round pick. Number seven was Micah Parsons. He's coming back this season. Then you had the TCU running back. Let's keep scanning down this to see the next couple guys. And you had Jeff Gladney, number 13, high pick. Uh, A.J. Dillon, number 16, second round pick. That snuck into the second round. People thought that was a surprise pick by the Packers. Number 17, Rondell Moore, highly graded guy this year. Number 18, Henry Ruggs, first round pick. You know, so there, number 21, Jalen Rieger, first round pick. So it's interesting to look back at last year's list to try to gain some appreciation for what it could mean for the guys that rank highly this year. Will the guys in the top 10, top 15, top 20 on this list end up being first rounders? I mean, the 2019 list turned out pretty damn good. We don't know what it'll mean for their pro careers, but from a strictly draft perspective, it was almost like fortune telling what some of the elite players would be in this year's draft. I look at a guy like Master Teague, though, for example, the Ohio State running back. He's rated seventh here. 
And if we look at him compared to like a Jonathan Taylor last year, who was fifth right in that same range, I watched Master Teague's tape this week and I wasn't impressed, Luke. I don't know if you had a chance to watch him, you know, as in great depth, but he, to me, like you said, he's not going to fit everybody's system. There's, there's going to be teams that, that maybe have that, that, that outside zone, one cut go type of, of running style that he could fit, but he's a very linear guy, not a lot of wiggle, uh, looks a little bit unnatural to me as an athlete in the open field. Yet here he is as the number seven guy on a freak list, largely because, you know, look, 228 pounds, 40 inch vertical jump over 11 feet broad, four, three, five, 40. That is checking every single box for an elite running back prospect from a size, speed, um, athletic testing standpoint. But when you put on the tape, I don't see that guy. I don't see a four, three, five guy. I don't see a guy who jumps 40 inches. Now, maybe, maybe the exposure I had wasn't deep enough to say for with, with a lot of concrete certainty that he's going to be, you know, a top 50 pick next year, like, like Jonathan Taylor ended up being, but I don't know. I, I'm going to wait and see like, for example, also two, two at well, a Louisville wide receiver, five, nine, one ninety. I mean, look, he's, they, they're saying he runs a four, two, six, but. Five nine one ninety, number six freak on this list. I don't hey, know. He's, he, he's fifteen pounds heavier than Devonte Smith. You mean Bernard Berrien? <laughs> oh, oh god, I can't. I want everybody in draft Twitter to remember that. Never going to let. Then I'll cut you off all the time after yeah. he goes to the Pro Bowl. Listen, I want everybody in draft Twitter to hold me to this. <laughs> I dare draft Twitter to hold me to this. Devonta Smith is one hell of a wide receiver, but he's not going to be a first-round pick. 175 pounds does not make the first round. Big asterisk, big big disclaimer. If the dude takes the season off and has an agency dump 100 grand into his training, yeah, he might get up to 190 and he's going to be a top 20 pick. But you, need, you, need to, you need to patent this idea at this point. You need to pitch this to people. You, you, this is the, the Brian Perez plan to avoid losing draft stock due to COVID-19. <laughs> but look, so just kind of kind of bringing this freaks list conversation to a close here for me. I think it's a really good um, it's a really good resource to kind of use at your disposal when you are evaluating a draft class. It's always good to have a little bit of a look behind the curtain. Some of this information is is the kind of stuff that we won't have access to without a list like this uh, that's put together by Bruce. And if we didn't have this, we would be starting from a much less informed position on a lot of these guys. Like, for example, I'm watching Master Teague's tape. I don't see a 4-3-5 guy, but he runs a 4-3-5. It's good to know. I'll go back and watch his tape again to see, hey, did I miss something in one of these big runs when he turns the corner, when he accelerates past the linebacker? Did, did I just – was I not paying close enough attention to it? Um it does help you kind of cross check your own work. But I think if you're using this freaks list for anything other than really a cross check, a reference point to confirm uh, what you've seen or make you go back and watch the tape again, you can't use this list as a Bible and, and a, a real variable in your final grade for a player. It should just be more of a cross check that gives you the information needed for a more well-rounded preseason scouting report. Because remember, a lot of the information that he's putting out in this list is going to change. I mean, 
if Master T runs a 4.49.40 at the combine, yeah, it's still really fast. But suddenly he's not the freakiest guy who allegedly runs a 4.35. So a lot of these numbers are going to change. A lot of guys testing numbers on their home campus. You know, the stopwatch might be a little faster. So um, use it as a variable. Use it as a resource. But I wouldn't necessarily uh, use this as much to get overly excited about as we head into the 2020 college season, if there is one, Luke. But what we do know is there will be another episode of draft season next week. It's always draft season here as part of the Blue Wire Network. He's Luke Easterling. Find him on Twitter so you can interrupt him nonstop while he's tweeting like I do during this podcast. He's at Luke Easterling. You could check out his draft work at the Draft Wire, his Bucks work for Sports Illustrated. I am at Brian Perez NFL. You could tech, you could tweet me all of your Devonta Smith love or hate. I'd love to read it. You could find my Bears work at NBC Sports Chicago. I'm also going to be putting a lot more draft work over there. You can check out my draft site, profootballdraft.com. Make sure you go to everywhere you get your podcasts from. Subscribe to the show. Rate, review it. Send us a, Give us a five-star review because it helps us grow the show. And, and listen, as we get closer to the season, whether there are games or not, Luke and I will be putting more shows out, maybe more than one every week to kind of get you guys ramped up for the college, uh, not the college season, but the the draft season as the calendar kind of the months keep flipping in the calendar. Uh, Luke and I, if COVID-19 does run its course, Luke and I will have boots on the ground at all the major events, um, assuming it's safe, as we just talked about. And we'll be bringing you guys insight like no other. So subscribe to the show and come on back next week to It Is Always Draft Season.